0: $25 each
1: visit dot concertweek slash concert to buy. Now
0: that's dot concertweek slash concert to buy. Now.
3: <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream, connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream.
2: dives into comic books. And I I don't know about you guys, but comic books did something amazing for me and for a lot of other people, I would imagine. They taught me vocabulary and language that I would ordinarily not have had access to. Words like excelsior, right? Or uncanny. People don't say uncanny unless
0: they're talking about the X-Men when they're, you know, six. I always thought Excelsior was the same thing as Alka Seltzer, but that's not the case at all. Yeah, dude, <laughs> You're right.
2: I, I like that idea. I like, I like the idea of Stanley just screaming for some off-brand Alka Seltzer.
0: Well, it could be his own brand. It could be Excelsior Seltzer.
1: Uh, but yeah, the, Ben, I didn't know anything about this episode, and I also I don't think I'm on this episode. So I'm going to re-listen to this and learn. Again, from Same you here. And, and your conversation. I believe this uh, episode features somebody that we worked with for a long time.
2: Yes, Christian Sager, uh, who w- who wrote a lot of uh, Brain Stuff episodes, for anybody who remembers that YouTube show, and also was a longtime co-host of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, Christian, a lot of people may or may not know this, you'll find out in this interview, Uh, Christian is a well-established comic book writer, and he's a horror writer in general. He's fantastic. Do check out some of his work if you get a chance. In this interview, Christian and I dive into concepts of censorship, art, and violence, how it translates to the quote-unquote real world. The conversation here occurs in 2015. So this is just a few years after the very first Avengers movie, and with that in mind, you can see how the early censorship of various comic book authorities in a way molded the films and the
0: fiction that we encounter today. From UFOs to ghosts and government cover-ups, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now, or learn the stuff they don't want you to know.
4: You gotta love paranoia. It's what made this country great. Fear of the Reds, fear of getting old, fear of failure, fear of each other. Deep down, we all just
2: want to be the same. Homogeneity is good. We must destroy diversity. And welcome to the show. As you know, that music means that you're in the right place. Hopefully here with me, Ben, our producer, Noel the Invisible Brown, and our uh, co-host, Matt Frederick, who is here in spirit. But right now, he's working on a fantastic video episode that we can't wait for you to see. Never fear the show soldiers on. We're here today with a very special guest. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's Christian Sager, a fellow comic book lover, co-writer, man about town of How Stuff Works.
4: Hey, Ben. I'm happy to be here. And I wish Matt was here, but he's a busy gentleman.
2: He is. He is. He is a busy guy. Um, it's testament to how much quality goes into your series. Oh yeah, it's 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 all him. Mm-hmm. It's ninety eight percent him. I, I sometimes I get his sandwiches. <laughs> uh, so we're here today to talk about uh, something that fascinates both of us, and I think Matt will uh, probably really want to hear this episode too. It's a little bummed that he couldn't make it. We're talking about a very strange episode in American history, right?
4: Yeah. We're going to talk about the beginning of the Comics Code of uh, America, that, or at least that was used in American publishing, also known as the Comics Code Authority, started after legislative hearings in 1954.
2: And, of course, we opened up with a quote some of you may recognize uh, well, what do you, do you think we should tell people or let them guess?
4: Well, that quote is actually from a, a favorite comic book of ours of Ben, Matt, and myself, which is The Invisibles is what we, kind of brought us in common together on mm-hmm. this topic. Uh, it's by Grant Morrison, and it's a great series from Vertigo from the late 90s. Uh, and it's about all kinds of things. I imagine a lot of your audience are familiar with it or or uh, would be fans of it, because most of all, it's about conspiracies, uh, conspiracy
2: theories. Yeah, the idea of what if every conspiracy you have ever heard is true, and they squeeze it into this one story arc uh, in a way that reminded me of the Illuminatus trilogy, which is yeah. another, which is another fantastic it's a book. Big influence, I think, on Grant Morrison for that. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what? So that's one of the comics we all have in common. And listeners, I know it might sound strange at first to say, "Hey, we're, we're looking for conspiracies." You guys are talking about comic books, but. Do we have a story for you? Uh, the comics of today, right, that you would find in your local in your local store, uh, are radically different in many ways to the comics of yesteryear.
4: Yeah, absolutely, uh, especially uh, from the fifties. Basically, if you go by decade fifties, sixties, seventies, then to the eighties when the direct market really took over, mm-hmm. uh, up until today. But by and large, the reason why they're mainly different is because none of the comics publishers today use the comics code anymore. Uh, it's slowly over the last... Fifteen years mm-hmm. uh, was uh, taken out of use by Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, all of the big name players. Mm-hmm. I think the last two were in 2011, and I want to say it was Archie Comics and DC Comics mm-hmm. that finally just decided to use their own in-house systems. Do
2: you remember? Do you remember the uh, Gold Key Comics and EC and stuff like that? Oh yeah, yeah. I loved those as a kid because there there was such graphic depravity. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and
4: those are not necessarily the gold key ones, maybe some of them, but the EC stuff is really what got Mm -hmm. the code started, uh, and how graphic it was. There were depictions of graphic violence, Mm -hmm. monsters, sexuality, Mm -hmm. uh, criminal activity, uh, and we'll get into this, but there was an idea that by reading these comics, uh, young kids were learning how to be juvenile delinquents. They were learning how to become criminals,
2: right? How to uh, how to skip school or lie to your teachers. And one thing, and you're absolutely right, Christian. Gold Key is, if anything, more um, their scary stories were more suspenseful, I think, than horrific. But the the thing that I loved about EC as well is that you know these comics for people who haven't read them yet do check them out. Uh, if you, especially if you enjoy horror, for a lot of EC stories, each comic was like an anthology, which had, you know, yeah. what, three to four, uh, shorter pieces in there. Yeah. And the only thing they had in common is that everybody in the stories went from zero to a hundred so quickly. They were like, hey, I'm, I'm tired of you being a bully, so clearly the best thing to do is to dissolve you in this slime.
4: Right, or like, uh, uh, there's a classic one. I, I don't remember the exact details, but where like a baseball team like cuts a guy up into pieces and uses his head as a baseball uh, to play like a game. <laughs> and, and then like you, I think like other body parts are like bases or something like that. Yeah, it's pretty morbid.
2: And, uh, you know, all in good fun ladies and gentlemen, all in good fun. But but the idea, which you mentioned there, that, that this would be teaching kids to be juvenile delinquents or or teaching them how to cut someone apart and use their head as part of a game. Uh, but, yeah, there, yeah, it was a little deeper
4: than that, but there were, and we'll get into that, but mm-hmm. that, yeah, generally there is the idea that the moral depravity of these books would somehow uh, infect the agency of America's youth and make them... Uh, darker, may turn them into murderers or criminals, or mm. uh, you know, uh, even affect, for instance, their sexuality.
2: Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking at here is a full blown uh, moral panic. In some ways Absolutely. similar, in some ways similar to the idea of uh, you know heavy metal music being a terrible influence or mm-hmm. uh, Dungeons and Dragons being a. a a terrible influence. Yeah. Or even like,
4: uh, more recently, uh, uh, national baseball, Mm -hmm. uh, was a bad influence because of the steroid use among uh, the players and that they weren't necessarily good role models. Very similar kinds of things went on between, uh, the government and the baseball industry as went on between the government
2: and the comics industry in the 1950s. So, okay. Yes. Let's get right to it. What what the heck is this comic code? Where, where does it come from? How did it happen? Sure. Okay. So uh, the code came out of
4: some legislative hearings that were in 1954, and we'll talk about those more in detail down the, down the road in the podcast. But uh, basically, there were hearings that were placing comics on trial for what we just suggested, that mm-hmm. they were a bad influence on America's youth. Coming out of the hearings, uh, the major publishers that were involved in comics decided that to preemptively strike against the government and to keep the government from creating any kind of uh, censorship program, mm-hmm. they would create their own in-house program that was the Comics Code Authority. Uh, and basically, this was 41 provisions that they wrote up that purged sex and violent and all other kinds of critical standards that people were up in arms about, mm-hmm. out of comics. Um, for instance, respect for government and parental authority was stressed uh, a lot. And uh, there was even, like, grammar police-type stuff going in there, and you weren't allowed to use certain kinds of slang or mm-hmm. colloquialisms. Um, and you could only receive the seal of approval on the front of your comic if it passed this group. This uh, Basically what they did is all of the companies paid into this Comics Code Authority to keep it running as an operation, and it had—I don't know what the 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 uh, manager of the mm-hmm. Comics Code Authority, or we can call it the CAA, I guess for the rest of the sure, show, sure. the CCA. Yeah, yeah, sorry, the CCA. Uh, but he was sort of a czar. Of mm-hmm. comics, basically, and uh, he had an office of of uh you know mostly admins who read all the comics that these publishers were going to put out a month or two before they happened, decided whether or not they were morally objectionable objectionable or not, right. and then. Uh, subsequently signed off on them or sent them back
2: to the publisher and said, you need to take this out or you need to fix this before we'll put the seal on it. No smoking, no heroin. Well, uh, although drug use was probably a a big red flag, I'm sure at that point smoking cigarettes was fine. Uh,
4: Yes, I think smoking cigarettes was fine, but you're right. Narcotics was a big deal, and uh, we'll talk about it again a little bit later, but it was narcotics use In comic books was actually the turning point in 1971 that caused the CCA to change the code.
2: Huh. So, okay, I I gotta tell you, Christian, right now it sounds like a dream job to work with this czar and just read comics.
4: I don't know necessarily that it would have been, uh, because yeah. that the people who were reading them <laughs> were largely uh, um, middle-aged women who the comics weren't designed for, mm-hmm. and who were um, huh, how do I put this? Like they had a very administrative role and they treated it very seriously, and there were struggles between them and the publishers, but for the most part. Um, they had a sort of matronly role. They took on a mother-like role looking at these comics and deciding whether or not they deemed that it would be appropriate for their
2: children. Uh, moral authority of yeah, sorts. Yeah,
4: exactly. And so these these uh, women and the, the czar who they worked for in uh, that guy's role changed over time, and there were multiple people who held the position. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, by and large, were making the decisions of w- how comic books would enter the market. Uh, if they didn't have the seal, they couldn't be carried by major distributors. Therefore, you wouldn't be able to buy them, for instance, like on a spinner rack in a grocery store mm-hmm. or a convenience store. Or, I don't know about you, but I first started buying comics at my local deli when I was a little kid, um, <laughs> and this was back when the code was being enforced. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, they were they were the gatekeepers who decided what we could and could not read.
2: Which is interesting because the there there's some inherent misogyny in comics already. And yeah, it's, it's kind of strange that at that time, the people in charge of giving the final call were themselves women and probably probably saw a lot of uh, condescending portrayals of women that weren't objectionable under the code. Yeah, and what's
4: really interesting about that is that it starts, because of their role and how women were portrayed in comics, especially from the 50s until, let's say, like, the late 80s, uh, there were really two different images of women that you saw. There were the femme fatales that we're all familiar with that... These were the women who were portrayed as being sexy or using their charms or or, right. were, or were drawn in a way that maybe wasn't anatomically correct, <laughs> uh, which is common in comic books for sure. sure. Uh, and as long as those women were treated as ultimately villainesses, then the Comics Code Authority was okay with that. But, uh, the rest of the time, women were largely portrayed as being, you know, naive, nice girlfriends, the kind of girl that you'd want your son to bring home and marry, you uh-huh. know? Uh, and so that's where we get, like, a lot of the, um, superhero girlfriends of the, of the 60s, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mary Jane, Gwen, Gwen Stacy, uh, yeah. Karen Page. We, We've all been watching Daredevil lately, Karen Page. <laughs> uh, who else? Uh, Lois Lane. Oh, good call. Although yeah. Lois has had been around long before that. Sure. Uh, but certainly started to fit that role more in the during
2: that period of time. So we see what what we're seeing here in a lot of ways is uh art. As a reflection of society and social efforts to idealize this reflection, um, if we could, if I could be a bit pretentious about it.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely a valid point, Ben. Uh, and there are such interesting things that were written into the original 1954 code Mm -hmm. that were prevented from being published in comics that when you think back on it and you realize how it was influencing our culture, sort of influencing what the limits were of, of, of what we could think, you know, mm-hmm. or what what we were – what we considered to be sort of a, a moral authority. I mean, like, for instance, here's just one line. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. Hmm. So that is like an immediate moral <laughs>
2: line in the sand yeah uh, about following authority no crooked cops no bad senators nothing like that absolutely and uh i i think in some ways that extends to ideology as well right like no great communist oh yeah that was a huge no-no especially in the 50s uh when
4: a lot of superhero comics especially were using communists as their villains you know in Mm -hmm. fact like a um, those who are familiar with Captain America and uh, his villain, the Red Skull. Well, the Red Skull started off as a Nazi. Mm-hmm. Actually, the Red Skull started off as a, as a sleazy businessman. Then he became a Nazi. Then in the 50s, he became a communist somehow. So his, <laughs> his uh, ideology has just shifted to whatever it was that we as a, as a nation didn't like. <laughs> There's one thing an evil businessman will love. It's communism, right? right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He had, he, <laughs> if anything else, you know, he he had a, a variety of, of thoughts mm. about how the world should operate.
2: Yeah. Right? Yeah, he uh, is a man of many opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what else? Like this code, uh, which which you showed me, and which is also available online for anyone interested. Uh, this, at least, this first iteration of this code had a lot of pretty specific stuff about what could be portrayed.
4: Yeah, it did. And it's long, so I, you know I won't go through all of it here, but I, I did highlight some of my favorite bits. And um, if you do want to read the code, uh, all three instances of it are replicated in full on the comic book Legal Defense Fund site. Uh, I highly recommend checking that out. Uh, and there's also a great summary piece on there by a woman named Amy Kist Nyberg, I believe is how you pronounce her name. Uh-huh. And she has actually written the definitive book on this, on the history of the code. It's called Seal of Authority. Uh, so if you really want to dive deep into this topic and learn about all the you know behind-the-scenes secrets of the comics industry, that's a great place to start.
3: so visit Snagajob.com or text SNAG to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice
0: on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details.
1: Terminix it.
2: Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today.
1: That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today.
4: Fantastic. But so here's here's some of my favorites, okay? You weren't allowed to use the word crime or the word horror on Hmm. the cover of a comic book. Those words were not allowed to be written. No true crime, no true horror. Nope, nothing like that. Um, And it wasn't allowed to especially appear alone on the cover. Here's another one uh, that's kind of interesting, uh, specifically dealing with horror comics. Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with The Walking Dead, ironic that that's the the, the terminology they use. The Walking Dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited.
2: Not lycanthropy.
4: Nope. They didn't really have their terminology down. Werewolfism. Werewolfism. Right (laughs) right away. I mean, that's borderline racist against lycanthropes, I think. I think so. (laughs) It's a very different time. But, uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's very clearly like a line being drawn of like, these kind of comics are acceptable, these kinds aren't. And Mm -hmm. by and large, the ones that weren't were crime and horror comics. And those were the ones that were published. Mainly by EC Comics, but also by you know a number of other smaller publishers at the time, and the code pretty much got rid of them. Well, wow. um, here's some other interesting stuff. They weren't allowed to treat divorce humorously or represent it as being desirable. Whoa, yeah, that's an interesting one. Really kind of throws you back, you know.
2: It makes me it makes me wonder if somebody was like had a bad relationship <laughs> Maybe. at the time. Maybe they did, yeah. And then there's this one. Respect for
4: parents, the moral code, and for honorable behavior shall be fostered. Respect for parents and moral code. So basically all child characters had to be portrayed as having respect for their parents. Mm -hmm. If they didn't, book didn't make it onto the stands.
2: Yeah, and it's strange, too, when we think about this moral backlash that occurs. uh, You were telling me that a lot of this originated a lot of the public outcry or uproar originated because of a trial that got nationwide attention um, and that there were some uh, fairly like uh, what's the best way to say it crucial moments where you know there's a guy holding up the magazine or holding up the comic right oh
4: yeah oh, sorry when you use the term trial I got confused for a second yes that's the that that was the committee mm-hmm. that was the subcommittee uh, that led to the code being created, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was led by a guy named Estes Kefauver. Um, I've got notes on it for later on okay. after we review the rest of the code. Sure, yeah. But there is, um yeah, that is basically what it led to, although there were some minor hiccups before that, too, that caused... Uh, basically the public to be concerned about comics in general, whether it was for religious reasons mm-hmm. or literary reasons or even, um, you know, psychiatric reasons, which uh, Dr. Frederick Wortham brought to the table.
2: Ah, uh, yes. So, okay, so we we'll, that's kind of a teaser, I guess, then, uh, for later on the show. But uh, what, what iterations has the code gone through?
4: Okay, so we just talked about the 1954 version. Then there were two others after that that were basically revisions of the code. Mm-hmm. The, the first of these came about in 1971, and here's how it came about. You ever heard of a guy named Stan Lee before?
2: Uh, the name rings a distant bell.
4: So he <laughs> wrote a little comic called Spider-Man. And uh, actually, uh, listeners, Ben already knows this, but I I, uh, went through airport security with Stan Lee (laughs) a couple days ago, which was really interesting. I got to watch TSA pat him down. Uh, (laughs) But uh, anyways, so in 1971, Stan Lee uh, wanted to do a comic book in Spider-Man about drug abuse And Mm. it was going to be about, you know, a character who was having trouble with narcotics And Spider-Man was going to help them out Uh, It was basically supposed to be kind of a cautionary tale type thing Right, it Uh, wasn't glorifying drug use No, not at all uh, and uh, the idea was that um, Marvel asked permission of the Comics Authority people to publish this special issue. They said, mm-hmm. "Can we please, for this, you know, this one instance, work around the code? We know it says that we can't, you know, portray drug use, but we're trying to portray it badly as a sort of, you know, public service announcement, type right? Thing. Yeah." Um, and they they did not get permission. The uh, Comics Code Authority said no, absolutely not. We're not going to do this. So uh, Marvel went ahead and published it without uh, the permission of the the Comics Code Authority. Got out on the newsstands. Actually had uh, support from the U.S. government to put mm-hmm. it out there. Uh, that the the U.S. government wanted Spider Man to be this sort of um, moral figure that would help you know children learn that drugs were bad. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. And uh as a result, it was hugely popular. It's a classic issue of Spider-Man that a lot of people you know, uh, look back on. And the this was this caused the publishers and the CCA to say okay, maybe we need to relax these restrictions a little bit. Maybe we're being a little too strict here. And maybe things have changed in the last, you know, almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of shifts. Um, so, for instance, like, they still prohibited the use of horror or terror on the cover, but they were a little bit more liberal in terms of how sex was reflected in society. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, drug use based on the Spider-Man thing. Um, there's some really interesting stuff that changes... Uh, with regards to, remember we were talking about werewolfism? Yes, yes. Okay, so this is, they changed that line uh, s- so that that stuff shall be permitted to be used when handled in the classic tradition, such as Frankenstein, Dracula, and other high-caliber literary works, <laughs> uh, uh, whose works are read in school or around the world. So as long as, you know, um, you your monster had some literary grounding in it. Wow, it it could uh, be portrayed in comics. But werewolfism, I don't know. is there a classic literature
2: uh, werewolf? Oh, I mean not from that time. There's ancient liter uh, there are ancient texts which depict uh the power different near human or near god things changing yeah. shape. It's yeah. if anything it's it's an older tradition than vampirism. They would probably see that as being like pagan though. Yeah, it might be not be western
4: enough. Yeah. What we really yeah. need is I guess like the closest yeah. thing is like maybe Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is sort of werewolfy.
2: Yeah, that's similar, but what we really need is something that's like a um, a general werewolf. Or a soldier yeah. a soldier being a werewolf fighting whomever the threat was at the time. The British I think the we communists. Got a, I think we got a pitch on our hands. I here. think we've got a good Actually, idea Actually
4: when I, the the show that I was at this weekend uh-huh. I saw Stan Lee at, somebody was uh, trying to sell a comic book called uh Nom Wolf which was about a, a werewolf in vietnam. vietnam. Yeah. I would read that.
2: Yeah. I would well, totally read I, that. I
4: think I would too. <laughs>
2: uh, so so I mean we have pretty predictable taste in that regard. But uh, so they're allowing now um they they're learning that these broad brush strokes that had originally been used are not going to be uh, going to be effective over time. Right.
4: Yeah, exactly. And but at the same time, a lot of the things that we were talking about earlier, you know, that I specifically cited are still Mm. in there. The stuff about government officials being respected Mm. and good always triumphing over evil and specifically the word crime being a bad thing. Uh, All situations within the family unit should have as their ultimate goal the protection of the child and the lifestyle of the family. That was another one. That they that was a the line they added in for the 71 uh, version, which is, you know, similar to what we were talking about earlier in terms of children having respect for authority. But it's sure. a very, very strict idea of what family means. Um, divorce was still a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, drugs had a <laughs> – like based, because of the whole Spider-Man thing, drugs had this whole set of uh, sub-bullets basically of like, <laughs> okay, here's what you can and can't do. Uh, you know, that that would make it work or not. Um, There were also restrictions for advertising matter. Like, for instance, um, you weren't allowed to have ads that had realistic gun facsimiles in them. So, like, if you wanted to sell a water gun, it had to look like a water gun. It couldn't look like a real gun. Um, Or even advertising for fireworks. They didn't allow
2: that at the time. Which is strange because they let a lot of weird advertisements into comics, especially around that around that time, like just leading up to the seventies and during the seventies. You know, listeners, if you read comics back then, you'll probably remember that there would be these two page splash ads with a bunch of tiny, tiny yeah. ads advertising just ridiculous stuff. Build your own submarine. There were all kinds of weird right. things. Yeah,
4: sea monkeys
2: uh-huh. uh, like um, the. One thing
4: that was really popular in the sixties was um like physical uh exercise programs to mm. like make you turn you into a strong man, like a kind of uh Charles Atlas type, uh, yeah. weightlifting body type guy. Um there were like martial arts lessons. Yeah. I always X-ray wanted specs. to get those.
2: Did you ever order anything from uh I never did.
4: I never I, did. I ordered comics. I never ordered yeah. like uh any of the, the, the that stuff.
2: And at our at our age range, we probably, those, those kind of, uh, ads had their heyday before we came on the scene. Yeah, they were starting to fade away. I'd say probably by the end of the eighties. Yeah. I started
4: reading comics, I'd say like 83, 82. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, maybe by the time I actually had pocket money to spend on right. stuff like that, they weren't really around anymore. There's, it one, slowly yeah. became video games.
1: Yeah,
2: right. Uh, there is one big, aspect so far that is missing from the comic code as we know it, and that is depiction of race. Yeah, so that's actually
4: a really interesting factor, and the 1989 revision uh, addresses that specifically. Uh, Essentially, they, again, they came to a point in time in which... uh, DC Comics had decided that they were going to eliminate the seal from their book, and and mm-hmm. uh, they were arguing with the Comics Code Authority about you know what should or should not be reflected in the in the code around this period of time, and as a result, uh, they drafted up a document that basically revised the entire code, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a task force that was put together of, you know, different different publishers, people from various publishers. At the time, 89, of course, it would have included Marvel and DC. Uh-huh. Probably, whew, it's hard to say what other comics were included, what other comics companies were included at the time, Archie. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of them were being absorbed into DC throughout the 80s, you know, Charlton, Fawcett. Mm-hmm. I think Fawcett was even earlier than that. But uh, anyway, what ended up happening was they they did have uh, this new 1989 version of the code was very specific about how you could portray national, social, political, cultural, ethnic, and r- racial groups, uh, including religious institutions. Hmm. So there was a lot of um, sensitivity to how different groups were being portrayed to the point that uh, there is actually a line in the 89 code if, for dramatic purposes, it is necessary to portray such a group of individuals in a negative manner, the name of the group and its individual members will be fictitious, and its activities will be clearly identifiable within the routine activities of any real group, or, or rather won't be identifiable. Okay, so they can't even
2: have a coincidental commonality.
4: Yeah, so like a really interesting example of this uh, was... Um, in Captain America in the '80s, I've I've done a lot of research into Captain America, it's true. Uh, and uh, in Captain America in the '80s, he would often come up against these examples of societal conflicts that were happening at the time. Uh-huh. So, uh, so the national organization. For women was very, you know, it was growing at the time. And uh, to address that, Captain America came up against a group of supervillain feminists <laughs> that were called the Femizons.
2: Kristen and uh, Caroline over at Stuff Mom never told you you're going to love
4: this. Yeah, I really want to show them those issues because they're fascinating. I think, like, if I remember correctly, the Femazons even, like, try to start their own society on a cruise
2: ship. <laughs>
4: they, like... Uh, like, commandeer a cruise ship and take it around the world as their own, like, floating country.
2: Do uh, they have superpowers? Or oh yeah, they yes, they do? Yeah, okay. some
4: of them do, but I think they were like, uh, you know, there were the femazons and then there were, like, the women that they were liberating from the various oh, points around see. the world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he couldn't address now, but he addressed the femazons <laughs> and it was, you know, obviously, Incredibly conservative take on feminism in the eighties, I imagine. Uh, so, yeah. And then you know when you had Tipper Gore and the Parent Music Resource Center, you know, getting into the whole heavy metal thing you were talking about mm-hmm, earlier, mm-hmm. to address that, he came up against a group called the Watchdogs, and it was like this fictional group of terrorists who wanted to advocate for, cen- for advocate for censorship, uh, and they they were so <laughs> into censorship that they would like blow people up. <laughs> If they didn't have their way.
2: So, uh, yeah, and uh, this, this it's interesting because while Captain America is not the, by far, not the only um, story or work of fiction to deal with these real life stand-ins, it's one that a lot of people see and some of it is so on the nose. Oh, yeah,
4: yeah. Uh, um, One of my favorite Captain America stories, and this is actually from the early 70s, Mm -hmm. is... uh, Captain America becomes disillusioned with the American government because this is under uh, writer Steve Englehart who wrote some of the best Captain America stories of all time uh, And he becomes disillusioned with the American government when he learns that the president of the United States is actually in charge of a conspiracy organization called like the Secret Empire, and this Secret Empire is basically like Hydra from the movies, right? Or or like uh, the Illuminati, like controlling everything behind the scenes. And when Captain America finally confronts him on the last page of this comic, Captain America runs into the Oval Office, confronts the president, and the president blows his brains out, commits suicide after. Admitting that he's the leader of this evil organization. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating mm-hmm. that they could get away with that, and they didn't show Richard Nixon's face, but it was pretty obvious it was supposed to be Richard Nixon. They did like the draw of the over-the-shoulder yeah. shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were using like silhouette or
2: something. Yeah, mm. yeah. And it's it's funny that you bring up Secret Empire because I remember reading that, and recently with the with the rise of Marvel movies. Uh, own empire, I've been thinking a lot about the uh, faceless, semi-corporate conspiracy villains or antagonists, because there's so many. There's Leviathan, mm. Hydra, Secret Empire, um, and there are like five more that I'm not even thinking about.
4: There are a lot, especially in Marvel. Uh, and and a, a big reason for that, actually, is that, you know, the writers at the time were critiquing their employers mm-hmm. uh it was the the only way that they had to sort of creatively Right, they they were writing about political issues at the time. Mm-hmm. Of course, there was mm-hmm. a lot of distrust for the American government during sure. Nixon's presidency, yeah. but there was also uh, issues that they had with their uh, corporate masters. Yeah, and so they would depict them in these kind of you know overlord uh, Roxxon Corporation. That was another yeah, one Roxxon. that was always they would, whenever there was uh, uh, problems with corporations or, or corporate integrity, uh-huh. or uh, especially the oil industry. Yeah, in like the nut, 80s, Exxon. Yeah, they would always uh, bring. <laughs> in this corporation called Roxon Corporation and they 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 were responsible for everything.
2: Right and they make a I think they make a Do they make appearance in Daredevil? I think think they're mentioned.
4: I feel like either in Daredevil or or Captain America there was a little Easter egg with rocks on it. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they show up later on in the the Marvel like phase uh, three movies or whatever we're coming up on now. Yeah,
2: uh, somewhere in Wakanda. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, and there's advanced idea mechanics, zodiac, uh, also You know, one of my favorites, of course, is the Serpent Society.
4: (laughs) Oh, the Serpent Society
2: is the best.
4: Uh, Secret Society of people who dress up like different kinds of snakes, Snakes. and they all, like, have uh, code names based on the kind of snake that they dress like.
2: Yeah, and uh, they're, at best, loosely related to that
4: snake. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, there's, like, a Sidewinder, but he's just, like, you know, a guy with a cape that allows him to teleport or something like that. I don't know. I don't think Sidewinders can teleport in real life.
2: No, and not all of them had, I know it's such a tangent, but not all of them actually had powers, which was so weird to me. There was one guy, I can't remember what his name was, he just threw, like, these (laughs) snake-shaped silhouette. They weren't even boomerangs. I totally remember (laughs) what you're talking about. (laughs) He just threw them. Uh, But... But anyway, so to to get back to that, um, I guess what we're saying is, although ostensibly a lot of this would just be the same um, bang up the bad guy kind of comic book, there's a deeper story that was being told, especially in Captain America. It's a story about the society in which we live.
4: Yeah, I would argue that, and, and, you know, I've argued that in academic articles that Mm -hmm. I wrote when I was in school, but but also that, you know, just that the ideology of the time was reflected in that medium, especially because of this code, that the code restricted in such a way what you could portray so that you could get broader distribution. Uh, In a similar way, I guess, to the MPAA with Mm -hmm. movies. Um, But... What's interesting is as the distribution model changes, the code becomes re- less relevant. So um, those of you who are familiar with comic book stores, their rise was really the late 70s, early 80s. And they came out of a network of head shops, actually, uh, from <laughs> from, the, from the 60s. Right. So a lot of those store owners kind of converted over to comic book stores or like a mixture of the two. Uh, and this broad network across the United States of direct Distribution, comic book stores, or what people call their local comic book store, or even LCS if you're that you're that into comics like uh-huh. I am. Uh, our LCS, for instance, or my LCS, is Criminal Records here in Atlanta. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, or, or
2: uh, I think there's also Oxford. Yeah,
4: you know, Oxford. There's
2: there's Titan. There are a few around. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, uh, and uh, so the idea is that these direct distribution platforms didn't have to have the seal on them. So you started seeing a few comics here and there experiment with doing gritty, more realistic issues that they didn't have the code on. And then you had the rise of sort of like what what most people refer to as the black and white independent comics of the 80s, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or um, uh, Concrete, um, Love and Rockets, books like that, that were very different from the superhero genre, uh, well, I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a parody and a sort of homage to superheroes. But but ultimately, it was a lot more violent and gritty than what we see now in the cartoons and movies of that property. Mm-hmm. Those started to get distributed, and they were just bypassing the code entirely. Uh, they didn't even bother with it. So by the time you get to 89 and they make this final change to the code, it's really on
2: its, its uh, deathbed. It's last legs mm-hmm. because – <clears throat> because uh, there's something not quite ethical about the formation of the code anyway, which we're going to get to shortly. But yeah,
4: I think it's important that we just kind of cover what it is yeah, and how it worked yeah. first, and then we can get back to the sort of collusion <laughs> aspect. Of
2: right, right. So uh, this the, the thing here is that this code, as, as you're saying, is becoming less and less relevant. The only reason it worked, the only power it really had... Uh, hinged upon relatively monopolistic distribution practices.
4: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, And in fact, uh, that's true, but in comparison to the way that comic books are distributed in print now, Mm -hmm. it was far less monopolistic. Uh, So the direct market had some very interesting stuff go on with it in the late 90s. I'm not going to get into it here. It's probably a whole different podcast. But uh, it has basically one major uh, distributor for all of the stores in the United States, and now they decide whether your book makes it into a store or doesn't. And it's not based on any kind of moral authority; it's more on sort of you know, will this sell or not, uh, or,
2: or will do we think it will sell? Exactly, it's their opinion, huh? Mm-hmm. So, so that kind of that practice still exists, but the comic code itself no longer exists, right? Right. So, uh, in two thousand one, Marvel
4: uh Had been going through a huge corporate shakeup. They had a bankruptcy. They finally uh, kind of were starting to get their you know business back in order, and uh, they dropped the code in two thousand one. They said so we're going to use our own in-house rating system now. So mm-hmm. like, if you look at the back of Marvel Comics on the Indicia, there's like a little like or a, I, I don't know what they're they might use an a i think for adult or something like mm-hmm. that or t for teenager or something i don't know what they all these different companies have their own rating systems now so it's kind of oblique but um yeah after 56 years of dominating comics When Marvel backed out, that was basically the end. A lot of the independent publishers stopped using it. And then, yeah, like I said earlier, in 2011, it was January of 2011 when DC Comics was like, yeah, we're done with it, too. We're going to use our own in-house rating system. Then Archie soon followed after.
2: And that was the the last gas.
4: Yeah, and without any of those publishers around to pay for these gatekeepers to keep reviewing comics anymore, the Comics Code Authority closed its doors.
0: So does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with
2: personalized pest care that puts you in control.
1: Terminix it.
2: Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today.
1: That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Attention, true crime enthusiast searching for a way to unwind after diving
0: deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night. Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief.
2: And what was uh, my question is, was it the same 100-something ladies reading the comics for 56 years?
4: (laughs) That, I don't know. I think that would be a fascinating story to kind of, you know, uh, interview one of the employees Mm. who'd been there for a really long time or if there was a lot
2: of turnover. I'm not sure. So one thing that I noticed early on when we were initially talking about this, the whole Comics Code, the rise and fall of this strange moral authority, uh, was that this group, when it was formed in the 50s, uh, did something that so many other private industries did, which you can trace back to Bernays and propaganda. Uh, they picked a name that sounded like it was a government thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. For
4: I mean... I, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid growing up, I always assumed the Comics Code Authority was a governmental unit. Yeah, I did it, too. It wasn't until I was an adult and started researching this stuff that I realized that it, had, you know, the government had nothing to do with it except mm. for the legislative hearings.
2: Yeah, and it happens so often. This this is an interesting thing because these sorts of name tricks were just very widespread in the fifties. But uh, lest we think that. Day and age of disingenuous marketing is over. Uh, all you have to do is look up some various trade associations, mm-hmm. uh, all of which have some very Uncle Samish names. And none of which are government related.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's true. That, that's an interesting. I never thought about that aspect. I th- that's an interesting thing about coming on this podcast because you and Matt have such expertise at looking all these various kind of machinations over the years.
2: You're too kind, man. Uh, you know, honestly, we we do we do try, but we've got. Uh, got a great team of listeners who lets us know when we get stuff wrong.
4: Yeah, cool. Well, I hope that the listeners respond to this episode too because I'd love to hear if you know, there's always little tidbit stories out mm-hmm. there that add to this unique kind of untold story of
2: comics. Mm-hmm. So, so okay, this came about like we we've, we've got what it is and we know uh we know how it changed and how it rose and it fell, uh, but what made these people so concerned, these teachers, these parents?
4: Yeah, sure. So it started off as a thing in probably like the late 40s, uh, hmm. where there were groups of uh, librarians and teachers and conservative religious groups that were accusing comics of being inappropriate specifically for juveniles. Hmm. Uh, and it wasn't because of their effects on children. They didn't come to that argument until later. What their problem was with it was that they thought that comics had a low literary quality, that they were too lowbrow for children, Uh. and that by reading these, it was basically the equivalent of, like, junk food. It was, like, uh, reading junk food. And they (laughs) didn't want their kids reading it, so they considered it to be... Uh, immoral, especially because of the you know, the scantily clad women that you'd find in jungle books or the glorification of villains in, in, in crime comics, sure. for instance, or yeah. horror comics. Um, and there was this study in 1949 that concluded that children who read superhero comics in particular did so to deal with self esteem issues. Now, this study was, Mm, by today's standards, I think we would we would judge it as not being uh, very empirical. Okay, uh, <laughs> but uh, that basically the idea was that kids who read comics had self esteem problems because they were uh, looked up to these hero figures and looked to them for a sense of security. Weird, yeah. And uh, it, you know, it was interpreted as being you know an unwanted behavior in your children. Uh, what ended up happening after that was that the publishers adopted their own code in 1948. This is before the code that we've been talking about for the episode so far. Okay. They had this code. It lasted, like, maybe a year, and it just failed completely. The publishers didn't take it seriously, uh, and again, ironically, what was then Marvel Comics, Timely Comics, just yeah. said, you know what, we're going to just use our own in-house code. Thanks, <laughs> but no thanks. We don't need to pay into this thing. Uh, but what shifted the tide was Dr. Frederick
2: Wortham. Ah, the psychologist you mentioned earlier.
4: Right. So Dr. Frederick Wertham was a New York City psychiatrist, and his campaign was basically that comics shouldn't be sold to children. Uh, his argument was that children imitated the actions of comic book characters and that the content within them desensitized these children to violence. And he... Built up a following over this idea. Um, he started off with articles and presentations and conference hearings. And ultimately, he wrote a book that you can still get today. It's this fascinating read called Seduction of the Innocent. Oh, I like the title. Yeah, it sounds very saucy. <laughs>
1: uh,
4: it's, it's it's nowhere near as interesting as Fifty Shades of Grey, but probably a more apt title. <laughs> uh, Anyways, so Wortham's you know, broad argument was essentially that the kids that were reading these comics were enamored with gangsters that were in them, or monsters, or murderers. Sure. It would subsequently use these comics as a, like, how-to manual to perform these actions themselves. And he saw this as sort of leading up to the crime problems that inner cities were facing all across America, especially, you know, in New York City, where he lived. So, what he advocated for was legislation by the government... On comic books, regulating comic books. And what this led to was the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency. This is the big hearing, you know, what you referred to as a trial earlier, um, that the Senate staged in New York City. And it happened on April 21st and 22nd, and then again on June 4th in 1954. And what they did was they called up a bunch of different witnesses to testify about comics. They had comic book publishers, comic book creators, comic book readers, mm-hmm. and Frederick Wortham, their kind of expert witness.
2: Right. And just to be clear, uh, the reason I referred to it as the trial is because earlier we said that comics were on trial.
4: Yeah, I mean that's that's essentially what was going on here. Yeah, definitely. And uh, what was really fascinating about the whole thing is that. Uh, it led to a really interesting conversation between the committee and a guy named William Gaines, who is the publisher of EC Comics, who we've been talking about earlier.
2: Ah, yes. Now, he, in 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 the mind of the committee and in the mind of Wortham, is sort of, he's the supervillain.
1: Yeah,
4: yeah, he is. In fact, a uh, little plug for myself here, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote a little comic book a couple of years ago called Think of the Children, in which uh, it is about this period of time, and... The, the villain in the story is William Gaines and he is an evil, like, a uh, sorcerer who's, uh, bewitching the minds of children and turning them into little monsters that attack the members of the subcommittee. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's a fun story. Anyway, what actually happened was, <laughs> was William Gaines, uh, when he came up to testify, uh, Senator Estes Kefauver, who was this like very publicity-minded po- politician at the time, he was from Tennessee, he really wanted to be president, and he was kind of famous for going after organized crime at this point. Oh, so he okay. wanted to use this as sort of his new platform for uh, catapulting himself to the next level in political stardom. Okay, yeah. So he goes after Gaines in the middle of this hearing. And he holds up a cover to one of the EC's books. I, d- I don't think it was a Tales from the Crypt. It might have been a um, crime suspense stories issue, I'm not sure which one, but it's a famous cover now of uh, a person holding a severed head of a woman with a bloody axe next to it, and he asked William Gaines, do you think this is in good taste? And Gaines just kind of stammered, and he said, well, uh, I think it's in good taste for for a horror comic, (laughs) Um, and then he just, you know... uh, just had this stream of excuses, and they were really, you know, rhetorically lame. Uh, And uh, it made him look really bad. It made comics look really bad. It was on the front page of all the papers the next day. And that was
2: essentially the killing blow to horror comics. Which is a shame, because uh, I I don't know uh, about any other horror comic fan, but now, just for some context, now people... Go out of their way to collect and find these, uh, well, you know, they're comic books, so they're kind of fragile after a certain amount of time, yeah, right? So yeah. people are going back. Uh, in a way, this ruling ultimately heightens the value oh, <laughs> or yeah, appreciation absolutely. of these things.
4: Mm-hmm. So Especially because yeah. so many of the other horror comics publishers at the time went out of business, and, you know, they they didn't think that those comics were going to be worth anything 50 years down the road. So right. they, they, you know, were pulping these books, basically. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's it's a really fascinating, you know, economical model when you think about, you know, what came out of this, mm-hmm. especially in terms of how it changed the comics industry, too, and what was being published afterward. So basically, this hearing goes on, and I do want to say one thing about Frederick Wortham before we go too far. Okay. He's often vilified by comics fans like myself uh, as being this big bad guy who said all these terrible things about comics that weren't true. However, I will say that I think there's a bit of a debate here. If you really look closely at Wortham's work, he had good intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, he was largely concerned. He had, He had moved to the United States from Germany after World War II. He had seen horrible atrocities, and he was concerned about inner city kids in New York City and the violence that was going on in his community. And by and large, he blamed comics for this and – that's the problem here. Is that you know he f- had this very single minded solution to the to what he thought was society's greatest problem, and he blamed violence and racism and even fascism on comics. Hmm. And he was homophobic, and he thought that uh, comic books. Mm, were in 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 their own way advocating for homosexuality. In fact, there's kind of a like infamous uh, quote of him talking about Batman and Robin as being a sort of you know he was one of the first people to uh, insinuate that they had a homosexual relationship.
2: Certainly not the last. No, certainly <laughs> not the last. Uh, but it's interesting you say this. So what we're seeing here is that his intentions are good at base. Yeah. Uh, he was just wrong. <laughs>
4: Basically, yeah. I mean, I think he, he meant well. Mm-hmm. I think he genuinely just wanted society to be better and safer. But his methodology... Was was really pretty awful. So this led to the self-regulation that began in October of 1954, a couple months after these hearings, Mm -hmm. where publishers all got together and adopted this regulatory code and, you know, threw their their fees in every month so that the the team over at the Comics Code Authority would, you know, uh, censor their books. (laughs) How did Gaines feel about it? Well, this is the interesting part, is that Gaines was not into it at all. In fact, he initially refused to join the group at all. He wasn't going to submit his comics for review. um, But because wholesalers refused to take any comics that weren't – they didn't have that little stamp of approval on them, he eventually had to join. Um, But this was short-lived because uh, basically Gaines just kept butting heads with them. Uh, there was a point where there's an, there's this infamous story. I want to say Al Williamson was the illustrator of it, uh, in an EC comic, uh, in which there was a African-American astronaut okay. who was, um, sweating. Uh, uh, he was, he was like in a spaceship and I think he was scared of something he was seeing off panel. So he was sweating okay. to indicate that his fear, uh, this was rejected by the code because they thought that it was ridiculing race. Hmm. Uh, And so there were some interesting issues there. William Gaines would argue back and forth with them. Eventually, this story would see publication. Uh, But ultimately, you know, Gaines was the first and kind of biggest casualty of the code. Uh, He folded the EC Comics brand. Uh, All those horror comics, you know, were taken off the shelves. And uh, he ultimately kind of had the last laugh, though, because he left comics and started Mad Magazine, and Mad magazine because it was a magazine and not a comic book couldn't be regulated by the code and therefore he
2: could get away with whatever he wanted to in there and it was a huge hit. Yeah, and you got to wonder what would have happened if he went if he stayed with horror instead of going to humor.
4: Yeah, I think it would have been really interesting, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh it would have changed the face of comics. Comics Uh, Like I was saying earlier, the the direction of comics changed because of this code. Horror was one of the most popular genres at the time. Crime Mm. was one of the most popular genres at the time. Without those things, we see the rise of the superhero. And the superhero – Ends up meeting a lot of the regulatory needs of the code, you know, holding up a uh, American ideals sure. and moral standards, mm. and not uh, glorifying crime or violence. Mm. Well, that can be argued. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. A Hitler punch is fine.
4: Yeah, right. Like, well, that's pre code, but yeah, yeah. Like, yeah.
2: well, you know, bring him back. Yeah, red red skullum exactly. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Punching
4: the red skull over and over and over again.
2: (laughs) Right. I wonder who has the dubious title of most punched (sighs) supervillain. That would be a fascinating... Uh, That'd be a good thing to find out. Might be the Red Skull. And, you know, he gets punched a lot. For someone who's supposed to be so smart, that guy gets clocked on a regular basis. Yeah, and he's been around for over 70 years. So <laughs> the numbers might just be on his side. Mm-hmm. So here's, <clears throat> here's where we find a little bit of a conspiracy afoot. This is not a conspiracy theory because this actually happened. You know, the, the creators of the comic code panicked by these hearings um, could could easily, you know, smell the coffee on the wind, I guess, to butcher a phrase. And uh, so they actually entered into this uh, as a sort of conspiracy or collusion, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair to say. And I think most, you know, comics historians would agree that they got together, they saw that this was an opportunity for their interests to push out their strongest competitor uh, so that their companies could survive and yeah their book lines changed too I mean like let's go back to that Captain America example for a second mm-hmm. Captain America was cancelled uh, between the late 40s and the um, almost all of the 50s uh, it wasn't until the early 60s I think that Marvel brought him back as a character with Stanley working on it with Jack Kirby mm-hmm. um, not that Stanley created a I'd like to to qualify that. Stanley did not create Captain America. He was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby.
2: If anything, he uh, revived Captain America. Sure,
4: yeah. He was the one who brought him out of the ice.
2: Yeah, there we go. That's fair. But this isn't the only comic book-related conspiracy. We we had talked, and, and you had a few others as well, right?
4: There's a couple of interesting instances with comics over the years. A lot of comics history is pretty shady, and uh, a writer that I admire, who I won't name here, refers to comics as being a pirate industry, and uh, in that there's you know there's a lot of uh, uh, hijinks and backstabbing going on behind the scenes. So uh, yeah, there's a couple instances that let's let's talk about here. So um, in the '60s, what was the, What became DC Comics? then it was called National Periodicals, was in charge of distribution for all of comic books. Oh, wow. Uh, Sorry, I said 60s. This was the late 50s. And what this meant was that they could decide how many comics of a certain type other publishers could distribute. So being that they were really popular at the time with the Silver Age versions of our superheroes we know now, like The Flash or Green Lantern Mm and stuff like that, mm -hmm. maybe Martian Manhunter, I'm not sure, uh, they... They decided, well, uh, you know, Marvel, you can only publish uh, six issues a month. You're not allowed to put out anything more than that. Uh, And uh, so Marvel's answer to this was the Fantastic Four. Um, They came up with their own superhero team. But they were like, we're going to do it differently. You know, we're we're going to inject that. This was the Stan Lee inject that sense of quote unquote realism into superheroes, <laughs> right? And uh, and that led to the Fantastic Four, which led to Spider Man and the whole Marvel Renaissance in the
2: '60s. So yeah, there seems to be such a such a disturbing comparison to the recording industry when we talk about these uh, shady or questionable business practices. Um, but it doesn't just stop at the distribution; it goes deeper than that, right?
4: Yeah. So then, uh, there's a really interesting story from I believe it's the 70s in which um, comic book creators were starting to talk to each other about what their page rates were to, you know, see whether or not they were being screwed over by their parent corporations or not, if they could get better rates. Uh, and what happened was Stanley, who was editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time, and Carmine Infantino, who was the editor-in-chief at DC at the time, got together and they drafted an agreement where they were going to share information on what their freelancer rates were back and forth. So they could keep the freelancer rates as low as possible and keep those creators from arguing for higher paid rates. Ah. And when uh, Roy Thomas... Uh, who was... Oh, I'm sorry. Stan Lee was an editor-in-chief at the time. He was probably, like, uh, president of the company at the time. Okay. Roy Thomas was editor-in-chief. When Roy Thomas found out about this, this that was the end for him. Uh, he actually referred to it... He resigned from Marvel Comics, and he referred to it as being unethical, immorable, and quite possibly
2: illegal. <laughs> uh, you know, it sounds like it very well could be. This is something... This kind of uh, collusion is something that has been reported with other companies, too. I think Apple got in trouble. It was either Apple or some other tech company got in trouble uh, in the past few years for doing the same thing.
4: That sounds about right, yeah. And if you want to learn more about stories like that, I highly recommend this book by Sean Howe called Marvel, The Untold Story. It has got so many great behind-the-scenes secrets of uh, how Marvel rose to power and fell and then rose to power again.
2: And, uh, there is, there's one very recent one that, uh, we should talk about or just briefly mention. Yeah, this is interesting.
4: It's a rumor right now. Uh, I guess a year from now we're gonna look at back, back at this and laugh or we're gonna say, oh, it was correct. But the rumor is, uh, Marvel, doesn't own the movie rights to some of their own characters right now. So mm-hmm. X-Men, Spider-Man, uh, Fantastic Four, and a couple others are owned by Sony and Fox. And uh, as we record this now in April of 2015, there's a new Fantastic Four movie that's about to come out this summer. Uh, and rumor has it that the guy in charge over at Marvel does not want the Fantastic Four to do well. Mm-hmm. He wants it to fail. And therefore... They're going to cancel the Fantastic Four comic book uh, uh, they're going to basically do everything they can to uh, discourage promotion of this movie mm-hmm. uh, now this is completely a rumor yes, the Fantastic Four is being cancelled I believe its last issue is this month or next month something right, like that right. but who knows it's comics you know they'll come back they could come back three months from now or something who knows sure um, but the, the the theory is that right now that yeah marvel's doing this on purpose
2: because they just want to uh squeeze out their movie competition and i have to say again we we do know that there's a rumor but it makes sense and the timing makes sense the motivation if it was there makes sense that might be a little inside baseball for uh, anyone who for some reason doesn't love comics but uh we have touched on some really Really huge ideas here, and I think the biggest one is the concept of censorship, which haunts uh which haunts the United States even today you know sure, yeah, since ulysses all the way up to uh the modern times the and i i mean ulysses the the james Joyce book, not the uh not ulysses
4: <laughs> not, not the mythical hero <laughs>
2: not the mythical hero ever since he came to jersey um <laughs> but but we also see that there's there's a reason for this because we see that uh, powerful forces, authority figures, are actively working um, to shape the minds of readers. Right? Yeah,
4: definitely. Whether in you know in this case at the beginning of the of, of the comic situation, it was uh, religious groups or or moral groups, parents, mm-hmm. but the, but it really got legs when the government took a look at it, and then subsequently the companies themselves said, we can take advantage of this, and we can use it to uh,
2: increase our sales. So now this is one of my favorite parts of the show. Toward the end is I, I want to just ask uh, the big question, and we don't have to have studies. It's just your opinion uh, and, and mine as well. What, if any, uh, influence do you believe fiction has on people's behavior? This is a very contentious question to ask,
4: especially uh, if you're going to ask it in an academic setting, because Mm -hmm. there's a question of human agency and how much we have agency beyond the media that we consume, right? So Mm -hmm. the idea that media can make us do something is very deterministic. However, I, uh, in my academic work, really investigated uh, this idea that ideology and, and, uh, national culture, especially was informed by or subsequently informed our popular culture. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's, I think it's something that's worth looking at. Um, over the years, you see, you know, especially with this, the code as an example, it's a perfect mm-hmm. example of what restrictions we are allowed to consume in our media. And then when those restrictions are lifted or how they change, mm-hmm. you know,
2: it's just interesting. Uh, fluxes. Like the whole um, is something that uh, you often hear people uh, from European countries say that they don't get about television in the U.S. is this uh, propensity for violence, this glorification of violence, and this deeply, deeply troubled relationship with sexuality. If Frederick Wortham were alive
4: today, and he saw television, he'd probably have a heart attack and die all over again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that we consume now, Mm -hmm. uh, which I love, by the way. I'm I'm a huge (laughs) fan of violence and and graphic uh, anything if it's used to tell a good story. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, it's... it's very different from what our moral sort of code
2: allowed 50, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I I think that we're seeing this evolution still. So, listeners, we hope that you enjoy this episode, and we'd like to hear your stories from your country or from your town about uh, the ways in which you think uh, the media or any media is being used uh, to shape behavior or ideology. And Christian, it has been a huge pleasure to have you on the show today. So I have to ask, um, is it okay if I plug uh, that latest Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode? Yeah, sure. Okay, so you guys, uh, Christian uh, worked with our friends over at Stuff to Blow Your Mind to do a fantastic episode on grimoires. And uh, when Matt and I heard it, we thought this would be perfect for our audience, too. What do you guys talk about in that?
4: Yeah, Robert and I talked about the history of magical texts uh, going back to uh, zero B.C. B.C.E. <laughs> B-ce. B-ce uh, right. Yeah, just uh, the basis for all these old tomb, tomes Sorry, of uh, magical spells or rituals mm-hmm. or demon summoning or angel knowledge, all kinds of weird stuff throughout history and how, you know, it's kind of similar to what we're talking about now, actually, (laughs) is that, like, the written word that was in those books at that time was was strongly considered to be, to have an effect on the people that read it and were
2: subsequently burned and you can find that uh you can find that episode uh let's see we're we're all over the internet you can find that episode on itunes stitcher your streaming service of choice and while you are online if you would like to listen to more episodes of stuff they don't want you to know you can find every one we've ever done on stuff they don't want you to you can hang
1: and that's there. the end of this classic episode if you have any thoughts or questions about this episode
0: each
1: visit live concertweek slash concert
0: week to buy now that's live concertweek slash concert week to buy now attention true crime enthusiast searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night. Look no further introducing Lazarus naturals your trusted companion for CBD relief.